Heavenly Father, I am thankful to be rejoined with my church family and with so many friends and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Our Sundays, Father, are the day each week we have that chance to remember that you have planted us with a family of God who care for us and depend on us. And I wish it were, Father, we could spend every day in this way together, but, Father, that will come soon enough in the kingdom. But for now, I thank you for the chance to, to renew our strength of faith and our hope, our encouraged hearts. Thank you, Father, for the chance to work beside you and through the Spirit to expand the gospel into the kingdom of the world that you're creating in the hearts of men. And I ask, Father, that you would give us in this word this morning a clear understanding of who you are and of how you choose to work and how we can help in that regard, Father, as you would call us. That we would see your holiness and your perfection and your wisdom and sovereignty and we would recognize that we are nothing without it. But with it, Father, we can do many good things in your name. Show us how that can happen, Father, in your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, chapter 43, we've got to finish here. Joseph's brothers, we've studied already, have now decided to return to Egypt. That's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, this time as they return to Egypt, they're bringing their brother Benjamin with them, which was the condition that Joseph set for their return. They need to buy more grain because what they had has run out. And then, of course, there's that issue of Simeon still in prison, though you don't hear him talking much about him anymore. Poor guy. And, of course, they don't realize that the prime minister of Egypt is actually their brother in disguise. They have not discovered that yet. So they are fearful of this return. They fear that as they come back to Egypt, bringing the money that they should have left the first time, but somehow mysteriously ended up in their sacks again, they're afraid they'll be accused of stealing. And so there's a lot on the line. There's a lot at risk in this return. Now, Joseph, for his part, he has his own plans in all of this. He's been waiting for his brothers to return so that he could move to the next phase of this plan to reconcile himself to his family. Now, at this point, you might ask yourself, well, what if they had never returned? What would Joseph have done if his brothers had never come back for Simeon? Jacob was insistent, in fact, that they would not go back at the very beginning anyway. What if that had happened? Well, from the story, it's apparent Joseph never considered that an option. He knows his brothers are going to return. And the reason we know that is because the dreams God gave Joseph years ago confirmed that one day his father and his brothers would bow down to him. And his faith in God's promises, as revealed in that dream, have confirmed for him and have kept him assured that this day would happen. Sooner or later, they would come back. And as a result, we even see the Lord working to fulfill those promises. God prolonged the famine so that the food that Jacob bought the first time wouldn't last. And there'd be no choice but to come back for more. And that reminds us that the brothers return to Egypt is part of a test that Joseph put in front of them. The second test he's given them so far. Were they going to be willing to return to save their brother Simeon, even though they had good reason to suspect they would be in trouble upon their return? Did it matter more to them to save their own skin or to save their brother? This test to prove their hearts are at least inclined toward doing the right thing. This is progress. This is better than we've seen already. But it's still not the full story. I mean, they're coming back for Simeon, yes, but how do we know that they wouldn't have just been forced back for the food and rather than for their brother? It's unclear at this point if they're serving their own interests or if they're truly coming for the needs of their brother. Joseph is going to have to test them even further to know if their heart is truly repentant. But the next test, the one we study today, is not one of stress and trial so much, but one of kindness. And, as you're going to see today, one of mercy. This is a new way to test their hearts. 
Then lastly, as another point of introduction, we've been observing throughout this story of Joseph how this narrative pictures a larger story, a future story of Israel. Joseph, we know, pictures Christ in the account we've studied. And therefore, his brothers collectively picture the nation of Israel as it stands in that day and as it stands today. And just as the nation of Israel rejected their brother, Jesus, the Messiah, likewise, we've seen this family reject Joseph as it pictures that larger work. But similarly, Joseph is working to reconcile himself with his brothers, which pictures how God himself and the man Christ will reconcile himself to the Israel that has once already rejected him. How does he do this? How does the Lord bring Israel back to the Christ that they rejected earlier? Well, Scripture says it comes through a period of trial and tribulation, one in which the environment of the world brings about the opportunity for Israel's repentance and their acceptance of their Messiah. This is a story of end times. This is a story told through the major prophets and through the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at some of that as we continue to go through the story of Joseph. Let's pick up where we left off. Verse 16. I'll read verses 16 through 25. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did, as Joseph said, and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. (laughs) So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. And behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He said, be at ease. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. It's a wonderful scene and the story of Joseph just gets better and better. So the brothers enter into Egypt. They arrive and stand before Joseph, which was the intent. And then Joseph sees Benjamin standing amongst them and he realizes they've done everything Joseph asked them to do. So now he is beginning the next part of his plan of reconciliation. And he tells these men through a servant, I want these men to be assembled at my house. I'm going to meet with them at noon. I'm going to have dinner with them. Now, the prospect of going to the home of such a powerful man, a man like Joseph, scares these brothers to death. Now, normally it would have been a high honor to have this kind of an invitation for somebody in that day. But because of that whole money switch thing that happened in the last visit, they fear the worst rather than expecting the best. They say to one another, this reason for the invitation is all about them taking us as slaves. They want to bring us into this home where he can accuse us and then pounce on us and then drag us off in chains. That is an absurd assumption on their part, really, because think about it. If Joseph wanted to make them slaves, he could have done so without any of the pretense. He could have just said to them, drag these men away. He didn't need to bring them into the house and put up with all of this other stuff. It it doesn't make any sense 
Well, nevertheless, these men cannot imagine a good reason why they're being asked to come to eat at Joseph's house. So they interpret everything they're seeing from a negative point of view. They are terrified that something bad must happen to them. This invitation to dine with the second most powerful man in the world is a bad thing. And so as they approach Joseph's house, I love this scene. It's so comical. I mean, just hearing it is comical, but imagining it, you can just see this play out in a way that's so funny. They come to the house and they they have to assume that their window of opportunity to save themselves is fast closing. And so as they arrive at the house, there's this poor, powerless servant just standing in front of the house. Right. But he's better than nobody. So they run up to him and you can imagine a gaggle of 10 guys all running up to him and then talking almost simultaneously, trying to plead their case to this one guy, hoping he'll listen, hoping he might be able to represent them. To Joseph. And so they say, look, here's what happened. I know it looks bad, but we had the money, but it wasn't us. Someone put it in our sack. It's not our money. We brought it back. We brought you more money. Please tell them it's not us. And the servant probably could sympathize with their panic. He obviously knows something of the story. We can sympathize with the panic, right? We know that these men are guilty of far greater things than stealing money. But in this case, they're innocent. They're innocent of a crime in this particular case. But yet, I think in their heart of hearts, these men understood that justice is blind. And a judge like Joseph is an unforgiving man, traditionally. And so the very fact that they have the money, that money they should not have had, would have been reason enough to presume their guilt and to punish them. Worse injustices have happened, certainly. And so they had no choice but to return, yet they're hoping, against hope, that they can convince somebody in this vast bureaucracy of of Egypt's government, that they did not actually do what it looks like they did. They want Joseph's mercy, and they hope that pleading their case to the slave is the way that they can avoid being dragged off. Now, after they finished telling the story, I wish I could have seen the expression on the servant's face after all of this, right? But we hear his words. He says some things that are completely unexpected, certainly to those men. First, he tells them, be at ease. But the word in Hebrew for ease here is the word shalom. He says, be at peace. Another way to translate shalom in in Hebrew is be completed or to be well, in a sense. And what he's saying is, you are complete. You are well. And then secondly, he says, do not fear. Now, what he's referring to is their fear of his master. And this slave knew his master. He knew Joseph's heart. He knew his master was a good man. He knew Joseph was a fair man, a man to be respected. And I think out of that knowledge, he could tell these men confidently, you have no reason to be afraid of Joseph. Joseph will treat you fairly. His judgment will be true. And then thirdly, the slave says, the money that you referred to was returned to you by God, by your God, by the God of your fathers. That's quite a thing for an Egyptian to say. The man, the slave, is obviously... Familiar with the God of Israel, probably because Joseph has made that known to him in some way. It's not clear whether he's God fearing himself or not, but at least he understands that Joseph's actions were in union with the God that Joseph claims. I think the servant knew what happened, but he knew Joseph did it in union with God in a response to God's expectations. And what he's saying is literally you got your money back because God wanted that to happen. And he's exactly right. The brothers, I think, have been viewing this entire situation, this invitation to come back, maybe even go back further, this whole need to return to Egypt. I think the brothers have always viewed this as a negative situation, a bad set of circumstances that they've had to deal with. 
Who knows how many nights they've lost sleep because their money came back to them. They got free grain and they're worried about it. It's obvious to understand why they thought they might be in trouble over it. But let's stand back for a moment and let's understand their circumstances. From the very beginning, God has been blessing these men. He has been bringing them back into a union with their long-lost brother, a brother who will be willing to forgive them. He has given them the access to the grain they need, and for free. And the whole time, their attitude, their view of it has been narrow because of the way Joseph has been putting pressure on them, because of the way that's supposed to help their hearts heal. We know that. But still, it's been a blessing. Finally, and and most surprisingly, the slave says, he says, I already have your brother's money. I already have your money. Now, that statement does not translate well from Hebrew into English, which is why it seems a bit odd. The statement would be better translated, I received your money. I received your money. In other words, someone else paid for the grain that you got. That's why you have your money back. Obviously, Joseph paid the grain. Joseph paid the price for them, for that grain. And with that, the servant brought the men into Joseph's house, brought out Simeon to them, refreshed them with water, washed their feet, fed their donkeys. Now, the brothers aren't recorded here as saying anything else. I think it's because they didn't know what to say. I think they're stunned at all that has transpired, right? They were being comforted in the house of the second most powerful man on earth for no good reason that they can tell. They have learned now that all this worry and concern they had over their money was for nothing because the debt had been paid. They had already had that paid by somebody else, and they must have assumed it was Joseph who paid for it. Who else would have known? Who else would have had the means to do it or the reason? And now they're being treated as honored guests, washing the feet, having the donkeys fed, etc. And finally, they learn a feast has been prepared for them in which they will have the chance to dine with Joseph at this feast. Now, these are a turn of events that are easily unimaginable to these men just a short time earlier. No one in their right mind would have ever thought something like this could have transpired for them. And now I suspect their heads are spinning, trying to make sense of it all. Let's take a closer look at the story of Jesus and Israel as it's pictured here, because you can begin, I'm sure, to see some of the parallels, even if not all of them come out. First, we know that the brothers have been brought to this point so far because of trial and because of stress. That's the backdrop to this whole story. In the case of Joseph and his family, the famine is that stress and trial that's precipitated these events and brought these men together. And that famine was so severe it made Jacob willing to place Benjamin in jeopardy, which was one of the steps of reconciliation that we needed to see happen. And then the capture of Simeon put added pressure on the brothers, of course. And then the money put added pressure on the brothers. That's exactly how the nation of Israel is going to come to a closer relationship with Jesus. Not to the fullness of it, not to the end of it, but how God will move Israel in steps closer to that moment of reconciliation. He will do it through tribulation, literally the tribulation, the one that is promised to come, a worldwide calamity that the Lord brings in order to bring Israel back to himself. And in that time of tribulation, Scripture tells us life in Israel will be made worse, not only by the supernatural events God brings, but by the workings of a man that Paul calls the lawless one, or the Antichrist, as Scripture calls him in John's letter. The Antichrist is a man who will seek to destroy Israel. And he does so because he understands it is a means by which, theoretically, he could stop the second coming of Christ. For that coming is for Israel. And as we learned in our last lesson, when I last taught, the enemy knows that Israel, if it were to cease to exist, 
would prevent the Messiah from keeping his promise in Luke chapter 13, the one that says, I will not return to you until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, speaking to Israel. And during this time of persecution, when the stress is coming to bear on Israel, the nation is going to retreat at a point near the end of that seven years to the city of Jerusalem to protect themselves against the attack of the enemy and the attack of the Antichrist. These are details that I have not covered in here as yet, and we'll look at some of them today and some in the future. But, of course, you can study them all on your own in the book of Revelation, as I've taught it before. But the pressure of this ordeal, the one you see now with Joseph, the one that seems to be bringing his brothers to a breaking point, it eventually changes, and it's become now a killing them with kindness plan. First, the brothers hear their debts were paid, then they receive this kind treatment, followed by a meal. This is going to relax them to the point that they can now move a little closer to their relationship with Joseph. And there's a similar phase in the last days when God, having brought all this pressure on Israel, begins to let some of it off and give a grace to Israel that helps them move to the next stage of reconciliation. It happens in this way. There'll be a moment near the end of the seven years, we're told, in Zechariah, in which the Antichrist's armies will have come to destroy Israel as they are entrenched in the city of Jerusalem. And as the nations of the world, led by the Antichrist, come into battle against Israel in those last days, the Lord begins to make himself known to Israel in defense of that city. We read about it in Zechariah. Let me just read a few verses out of Zechariah 12, starting in 12.1, going to 12.9. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold... I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God and the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So I want you to notice as this prophecy explains, there is a future day in which Israel is living in Jerusalem. And in the time of tribulation, that will be the city where the nation retreats to in protection of itself. Now, we also know from Revelation that the nation will have an opportunity during tribulation to rebuild its temple. The temple of God is traditionally called the house of David or the house of God in the city of David. That is pictured, by the way, the brothers have been invited back to Joseph's house. So as these brothers have been invited into Joseph's house, we see a picture of how God will lead Israel back to his house, to the city of Jerusalem in the last days. And their first understanding of Joseph is provided not by Joseph himself, but by that servant who was standing outside the house. With that servant, they get to know a little bit about the heart of this man. They learn that he is kind and his judgments are true. They learn that he is kind even to ungrateful men like these brothers. That pictures how the Lord himself in those days in Jerusalem will begin to make himself known to Israel, but subtly at first from a distance defending them against the attack. You heard it said in Zechariah that when the attacks come and God defends, the people in the city will recognize God's at work in this. There's no way we could have defended ourselves without that kind of help. 
and they begin to see the Lord of hosts at work on their behalf. But they come to see these things by his spirit. And in this story, this nameless, faceless servant that stands outside the door and testifies to the truth and to the goodness of Joseph is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Remember back in chapter 24 when we studied about Isaac and Rebekah and the, the way Abraham sent a servant to go find Rebekah, the bride for his son. And we learned then that whenever you see the picture of God forming with his son and then a servant who goes without a name, that means it's a picture usually of the Holy Spirit. Here we find that once again. A servant, unnamed, serving a man who pictures Christ and does so by pointing people's attention back to him as a sovereign who is good and trustworthy and right and true. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And in the last days, the Holy Spirit will testify as well that the Lord is a good and gracious Lord protecting Israel. Luke 6.35, Jesus telling the church, he says, But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And then he says this, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And that's exactly what you see happening here with Joseph. So because of the servant's testimony, the brothers begin to rethink their assumptions about who this Joseph is. And then Zechariah says finally that the nations of the world, under the direction of the Antichrist, will attack Jerusalem and put Israel into great fear And I want you to notice the attack is something God himself is orchestrating, according to Scripture, for his purposes in bringing Israel back to himself. It may be the Antichrist leading them, but it is the Lord causing the war. And then at the point near its end, when Israel is at their breaking point, that's when the kindness of the Lord showed up. Just as you see here, where at the very end, the brothers begin to sense there's something more to this Joseph. Now, Joseph is yet to reveal himself, and that's not coming yet for another chapter. But even now... The brothers experience his kindness. They're being treated with honor. This is an honor they do not deserve. They have not earned Joseph's favor. If anything, they've earned his judgment. But Joseph, nevertheless, is giving them mercy as grace to them. And that is exactly what we see happening in the last days. Israel has not come back to their Lord yet. Israel is still an unbelieving nation as the end of tribulation winds down. They are in a place where they need help. God provides that help as grace to them. And they begin to see God's heart in that way. But they do not know Christ yet. He has not revealed himself to them. They have not confessed him yet. But God is moving them in that direction. And by the way, what is the basis for the brothers receiving the grace that they've received? Why is Joseph being so nice to these men? Well, because this is his family. These are his brothers. And he is, therefore, in a relationship with them, which he cannot deny. And it's his heart to reconcile with those who are his brothers. And scripture says that Jesus was sent to his own, but his own did not receive him. But his own will receive him, for they are in a covenant with Jesus, and God will not revert his covenant. He will not forsake his promises. And it is that basis alone that assures us that in those final days of tribulation, the grace of God will be made evident to Israel, because that is God's heart to keep his word. You know, Joseph suffered a penalty because of their sin, didn't he? Twenty plus years in Egypt, some of it in prison, some of it in slavery, etc. And now he's determined, Joseph is determined to take all those suffering years that he had and turn that into an advantage for his family. Because of his suffering, he became who he is now as the second most powerful man in Egypt. That gives him the capacity to do some marvelous things for his family in the middle of these circumstances. In a sense, you can say he turned the brother's sin into the reconciliation. And Jesus, likewise... 
He suffered the penalty of Israel's rejection of him, which was to be put on that cross. But because of Jesus' payment for their sins on the cross, he can then turn what was great sin and tragedy into the opportunity for reconciliation to his own people who rejected him. The picture is perfect. Let's move forward with one more passage, chapter 43, 26 through 32. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked about their welfare and said, is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself, them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. So Joseph arrives at noon. The brothers bring the present to him that they prepared. Remember that present that Jacob insisted they take, which was this pathetic little group of nuts and fruits and and whatever they had available, spices. I mean, here's a man, Joseph, who has the best of the world at his disposal. And they come with these trivial gifts because of the famine. That's all they had. It would have been a very meager gift at best. Still, the mention of the gift coming from Joseph's father gives opportunity for Joseph to ask about Jacob. So you mentioned his father. How's he doing? Is he still alive? And he's told, yes, he's well. Then he sees Benjamin, recognizes him, and then blesses him. But the whole scene is too much. The whole family is there but Jacob. All the brothers are back in the room together now. And the sigh of it all brings Joseph to tears and he has to leave. He's overcome by emotion. He composes himself, we're told. And because the plan is not finished... He comes back into the room to continue with what he has started. You have to appreciate and admire the strength of this man, really. At that moment, he must have been sorely tempted to just reveal himself and move to the next stage of the relationship, which he desperately wanted. But the problem goes back to where we were several weeks ago now. If he reveals himself before he knows these brothers' true heart, before repentance has truly attached in their hearts, he'll never have another chance. For once they know who he is and in the power and the position he has, they will always treat him with respect from this point forward. They'll always show him deference because of who he is in his power. But that won't necessarily be their true heart. He needs to know what they think before they know who he is. So he comes back. He seats them for the meal. But he seats them in a very particular manner. Joseph, we told, eats by himself. So Joseph's all by himself at some table because to his brothers... Joseph was an Egyptian, so they wouldn't want to eat with him. And according to the culture, he shouldn't want to eat with them. But to the Hamite Egyptians who knew Joseph's origin, they know he is a Semite, so they don't want to eat with him either. So neither party wants anything to do with Joseph. Well, then you have the brothers. Now, they sit at their own table for the same reason. They can't mix with the Egyptians. And then, of course, lastly, the Egyptians are over here by themselves. That's part of what we learned earlier when we learned about the nature of the rulers in this day, the Hyksos, who had come in outside of Egypt, conquered the Egyptians, and were ruling over them at this stage of history. They were Semites, like Abraham's family. And the Hamites, who were the native Egyptians, 
detested Semites, and so there was this inability for the two to mix. But even in this strange little moment, we see another picture of Jesus in the times of tribulation. We're told in Scripture that the world will reject Jesus and they will be offended by his message. Jesus will not be embraced by the Gentile world, at least not in the last half of tribulation. But likewise, in that last half of tribulation, while the Gentile world is set against Christ, has taken the mark of the beast and is forever outside his reach, according to Scripture, in that same period of time, there will be these Jews who, while they have not yet embraced their Messiah, they have rejected the Antichrist. So they sit in this in-between world where they're persecuted for their lack of following the Antichrist, and they have yet to discover who the real Messiah is. And so you have Jesus in the last part of tribulation alone, as it were, without the Gentiles, but also not yet with his people. Not yet. And then it's apparent Joseph knows these men, of course, and he knows them far better than they could ever imagine at this stage. But he wants to show them a little bit of how much he knows by how he seats them at the table. Look at verses 33 and 34. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So you have to imagine this in your mind's eye. The men are seated around a table. Usually in that day, tables were low to the ground. You sat on cushions on the ground. You didn't sit in chairs as we think of today. So you were stretched out, reclined in front of a table that was on the ground. And there was a very prescribed order for how you seated tables generally in that culture. People didn't just pick any seat they wanted. The culture dictated that seating position was based on honor. And honor could come in a variety of forms. But usually in a family setting, it would be dictated by birthright, by age. So as these men are told to sit, they're told by Joseph where to sit. And after they're all seated around the table, their eyes meet and they look at each other and they just do a quick bit of mental math. And they come to realize we're seated in perfect birth order around this table. The oldest by birthright is in the most honored position. And then it descends from there, we're told, down to the youngest by age. Now, all of these men were born within a very short period of time, we remember. And they're all fully grown and adult by this point. So there would have been no reasonable way that a man could discern their age differences simply by the sight of them. He might have been able to know who was the youngest from who was the oldest, but he would not have been able to tell the in-between ages of all 11 of these men. That would have been nearly impossible. In fact, the odds of getting that right are 40 million to one, based on the number of people we're talking about. Do the math. Not now. You'll have to do it later, but do the math. So these, these men are amazed, we're told. They're amazed because they recognize this is not coincidence. No, they've skipped past that. Their amazement is, we know somebody knew how to do this. How did he know our ages? How could he have done this so perfectly? It can't be chance. And then the test came. Joseph takes the food that he's giving to them at this table, and he demonstrates honor for the youngest at the table, which was Benjamin to a such a greater degree than the rest that it can't be ignored. He gives Benjamin five times what he gives everyone else. If they just doubled it, you might not have even noticed. Or if you did notice, you might have just passed it off as sort of a sloppy cook who just didn't hand them out in the right portions, right? But when it's five times, it must have been an absurd amount of food set in front of this, this youngest kid to the point where everyone had to be staring at that thinking, what does that mean? And how do I get some of that, right? What does that mean? Because it's clear in their culture that the youngest is never honored above the oldest, except except who does that routinely? 
Who has routinely been honoring the youngest above the oldest? Not because that's where honor deserves to be, but because it suggests something coming from outside the world, from a standard that's different than the world, from a source that's not of this world. Who's been doing this in this family? We've studied it. We've seen it. But, folks, it's been going on so long now in the family. It's not been lost on them. It's a sign. It's evidence of God at work. It's become his signature in this family. And they look around and they're amazed. Now, the question, the test is, how are they going to react to Benjamin being honored? Hasn't that been the problem in this family when you get right down to it? Isn't that the source of their discontent with Joseph? Joseph was honored disproportionately to his place of honor in the family. And that disproportionate honor created such animosity within the family that they were ready to do anything, including kill their brother to overcome that. Well, now you have a chance to see if their hearts have moved anywhere in a positive direction, because though it's a small gesture at a table setting, it shouldn't be that hard for Joseph to read the faces, to look at the eyes, to sense what is their feeling when they see this greater honor given to the youngest? Do they still revert to their old behaviors? Are they still thinking with old attitudes? You know, the Lord calls us each in our walk of faith to leave behind that old nature, to leave behind old habits, to set aside old grudges when it comes to dining with him, so to speak. As we participate in the body of Christ, we recognize our union with him through a very simple ceremonial meal that he gave us, which is intended to invoke in our minds and our hearts this sense that we have come into a union with Christ as the emblems of the communion meal represent. So in a real sense, you can say we dine with Christ on a regular basis. With all that you've been given in faith, the eternal inheritance that has been made available to you by faith, to the new nature that's been given to you in the Holy Spirit, to the call for a life that lives called out from the world, lives holy and set apart, all of that now has come to us by faith. Ask yourselves, have we moved on in our own hearts from the one we used to be to the one we're called to be? That is an open question, folks. It doesn't happen automatically, not necessarily. But it depends on our willingness to set things aside. Now, these brothers don't know that Joseph is Joseph. These brothers don't understand they're in the middle of a test. They're being given the chance to react naturally for who they really are. You know, the old saying, character is who you are when no one's looking. Who are you in Christ? I don't judge that based on who you are in the one hour and a half we spend together every Sunday. And don't take me wrong. I have the best of expectations for everyone in here. But honestly. You can be the worst person in the world and come in here for an hour and a half and act pretty nice. Everyone can. I do it. The truth is, who are we in Christ? Who is really inside you? By the Spirit's power, by the life-changing power of the Word of God, we can become someone far different than we were before we knew the Lord. And that is the Lord's expectation on us. But His way of revealing that is through little tests. Day to day, throughout your life, little tests where you suddenly have a moment in some circumstance, to reveal yourself, to think, to act, to speak. What does that look like? What God has done through this moment in Joseph's life and in these brothers' lives is he's brought a simple moment to bear so that there can be a simple witness to whether there's been any change in their hearts. And so we wonder, what did these boys do? Look at the text. We're told they ate and drank freely. It's almost more revealing what little is said than what might have been said. The fact that there is no conversation, the fact that the brothers don't seem to care, they're eating freely, they're enjoying the meal together. They may have noted it, may have wondered about it, and then it didn't matter, as they should have done. They're still far from where they will be. But the Lord's test has revealed that they appear to be moving away from the favoritism and the animosity that has marked this family for so long. And if that is true, what has brought them there? 
for all the stress and the trial and the fighting and the slavery and the separation and the, all the things that have transpired. Now, as that's all seeming to fade and they've been brought together and they're enjoying a meal, I think the hearts are softened through all of that. And the reconciliation is more powerful as a result. This sets the stage for the last test that Joseph is going to give them as we study chapter 44 next time. And in that, you're going to see an opportunity for forgiveness and the revelation of who he is to be made available. Let's pray. Let's uh, go into the next part of our Sunday and enjoy the time working on our church as we give ourselves to that purpose as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, today is an opportunity for you to test our hearts. And I say that, Father, knowing that the, the full test won't come until the day we stand before you and We will pass that test with flying colors, for we will do it standing in the righteousness that you have given us, Christ's righteousness, made available to us by our faith in his work. But even now, Father, we have access to the Spirit. We have access to who you are and to your power. And so today, Father, is another chance for you to test us in small ways and in large, to let us reveal ourselves truly. Will we be gracious in the face of a slight or an insult? Will we be diligent as we contemplate a difficult task? Will we be obedient when the world tempts us to do something other than your word? Will we show mercy? Will we show love? Or will we care for self? Father, I pray that you would give us not only the knowledge of what to do, but the power and the courage to act on it. And I pray that because we would act in that obedient way, you could use our witness to do great things for your name. And we would look forward to the opportunity to serve you in that way today and in every day. Thank you for the word from the story and the life of Joseph to help remind us of the importance of these things. And bring us back, if it be your will, Father, in the weeks to come so we may finish this story, embark on new ones, and share it with others that we may not know yet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.